Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, I meet a researcher who's created a new and environmentally friendly refrigeration system that's based on artificial muscles. I also chat with Physics World colleagues about what's new in physics this week, including two studies of a champion semiconductor that could soon replace silicon, and research on how electroencephalography has been used to detect hidden consciousness in brain-injured patients. And we also look at the dangers posed by rocket stages falling from the sky. But first, a word from our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by GNBKL Group, a world-class manufacturer of vacuum hardware, including chambers, valves, and components. Make sure you watch their online game show, Will It Bloat?, where they place everyday objects, such as a hot dog, a chocolate Easter bunny, and even an air cylinder into a vacuum chamber to see if they bloat. You can watch America's favorite vacuum show at www.vacuumchamber.com. Refrigeration plays a crucial role in keeping us fed, and air conditioning can make life bearable in hot countries. But refrigeration consumes large amounts of energy, and conventional refrigerants are potent greenhouse gases. So scientists are looking for better ways of keeping things cool, ways that don't have as high an environmental impact. I'm joined down the line by Paul Motzke of Germany's University of Saarland, to talk about a new refrigeration technique that promises to offer a more sustainable way of cooling. Hi, Paul. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So, Paul, you and your colleagues are developing a new cooling technology that uses artificial muscles. Can you describe these artificial muscles and how they can be used to create a system to to keep things cool? Yeah, of course. Um, so uh, the base technology that we're using is, is not a new technology at all. It's called uh, shape memory alloys, which is all uh, based on. And uh, these shape memory alloys have been used uh, in, in several applications for years, mainly uh, in biomedical applications for their super elastic uh, properties, but also um, uh, lately in, in actuator systems. That's why they're also called artificial muscles. So these um, shape memory alloys, uh, mainly nickel titanium is the, the base material which is used. They have an effect and it's a thermal effect as where um, they uh, yeah, are heated. They change their crystal lattice structure. So uh, in, in physics speaking, uh, the atoms rearrange when they are uh, heated up. And um, this kind of makes up this, this so-called shape memory. Um, so uh, this thermal effect uh, is described by, by latent heats that are either put into the material or taken off the material to change these phases. And um, we are, uh, started, started in the field of the so-called elastocalorics um, to, to use this effect to transport heat 
which is exactly what is done by, by um, conventional air conditioning systems or refrigeration systems where the, the compressor moves heat from one side to the other and one gets cold and one gets warm. And, and this is exactly what we're using the material um, or how we're using this material now. And um, yeah, this is really exciting because we've been able to show that it can work really efficiently. And so, uh, so a fridge in your kitchen, um, essentially that, that works with two phases, doesn't it? You've got a liquid phase and then you've got a, uh, a gas phase and, and, and that's how the refrigeration, refrigeration cycle works. So in your system, you've got two different phases of a solid. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. So uh, instead of, of, of changing between uh, liquid and, and gas phase, how it's done in, in conventional uh, system vapor compression systems. We are fully solid state based and can have this phase transition, this phase transformation inside the solid metal material. And so, Paul, what, what are some of the benefits of your system when compared with these conventional vapor compression systems, the sort of systems that are used in refrigerators and air conditioners? Yeah, so um, I mean, uh, you already um, partially mentioned it in, in your introduction, and, and this is why, why it's been really exciting um, to, to work in this field. So I think the main benefit uh, as of right now in our current situation, in, in our current situation in Europe, um, is the, the energy consumption. And um, we've started to compare on a scientific level of how efficient can we be with this technology uh, so you look into the material like you look into a refrigerant um, right now and, and look at what's possible as far as efficiencies and, and, and in cooling and refrigeration. You always talk about the coefficient of performance, a so-called COP. And um, these systems nowadays, the, the best air, conditionings, uh, uh, air conditioning systems, they work at COPs. Uh, around two to three, um, and uh, that means um, to, yeah, you put in or you can move uh, two or three times as much heat as energy uh, as compared to the energy you put in into the, the system, and um, so it's kind of a yeah a flipped efficiency, so if you want so. But um, um, so we've uh, had research on the material side itself. And um, they, the, the research suggests that we can reach much higher COPs, much higher efficiencies. Um, and uh, from, from base science, uh, they can be up 10 times, 15 times higher. And um, we have, uh, uh, in the course of our, of our DFG priority program, uh, which has been running for six years, um, we've developed a, a first demonstrator where we could show that we reach a COP of 10, which is already three times as high as uh, the, the current uh, system. So in, in yeah, speaking again about energy consumption, now we're talking about we only need a third of the energy right now that we are using uh, for, for the cooling application. And, and this, is, this is a main benefit. Then the second, not less uh, important, is the, the environmental impact. So uh, you already mentioned again on the, the refrigerants, which, which are used right now in these vapor compression systems. They are, they are highly volatile for, for global warming. They have global warming potentials over 1,000 
uh, and and uh, uh, the, the GWP, the global warming potential, one is CO2. And we all know CO2 is bad, but these refrigerants are really volatile and, and much worse than the CO2. And um, they're looking for alternatives on this side, but um, they haven't really found uh, ones that are still efficient or, or don't come with other problems. And um, obviously, this is a fully solid state based uh, technology we don't have a global warming potential. There is no volatile gases, and this makes it uh, interesting uh, as we talk about sustainability. And, and what, why is your system so efficient? Is, is it because you don't have to have a, a, an electric motor, let's say, that's compressing gas and you know all the sorts of things associated with that? Or is it sort of something that's inherent to the materials that you're using? Yeah, it's the second thing you said. We still need an electric motor and, uh, and we still need uh, a driving force that does the, the mechanical uh, uh, stress or strain on, on our material to release and absorb these, these heats. But um, electric motors can be really efficient. Uh, they are really efficient nowadays. Uh, but uh, the, the really benefit as far as the, the cooling efficiency is within the material. And uh, there you compare the, the nickel titanium or the nickel titanium based alloys to the refrigerants we just talked about. And, and these refrigerants, they just have the limit. Um, it's in the thermomechanical uh, cycle uh, where, where you can only get this much out of it um, by moving uh, these, these heats. And, and the, the elastocaloric principle allows for much higher uh, efficiencies because of the inherent material properties. Now, Paul, you and your colleagues at uh, the University of Saarland, uh, you've recently demonstrated a prototype at the Hanover Messe, which is a big, uh, I suppose it's a big technical exhibition in Germany. Um, how does the cooling ability of this prototype compare with a familiar appliance like a domestic refrigerator or maybe a, an air conditioner that you would have in your window? Yeah, so that's a that's a good question, and and um, the, the Hanover Fair, the Hanover Messe, it's the biggest. Uh, I think it's maybe the biggest uh, industrial fair in the world, actually. Um, and uh, we use this uh, as a platform to kind of uh, promote our our technologies. And the demonstrator we presented is the first ever demonstrator that was created in this field that can continuously cool or warm uh, air. And directly. So uh, on one side, uh, cold air comes out. On the other side, warm air comes out. And um, this is was first ever done and shown, and it's by no means optimized. And it's a it's a first ever scientific proof of concept that that this technology can work. So um, if you're now talking about different applications like an air conditioning system, maybe it becomes uh, more similar to that now, where you can directly cool the air. Uh, which is an again an advantage of uh, we're not using a separate uh, uh, a separate uh, cooling um, circulation of a refrigerant that that indirectly cools the air. But um, if we talk about domestic appliances like refrigerators, it's again it's a different field of application. So uh, you gotta you always gotta look into the all these different fields of applications where cooling but also heating becomes relevant. And, and the clue with the refrigerator, um, it's always the first example we get asked for, and, and, and it's, it's, it's a little funny, but the clue really is, um, which makes this uh, uh, um, maybe not the first application where our technology will, will uh, be used in, um, is that refrigerators always come with freezers. 
And the really low temperatures now, they are, um, they are more tougher to reach. Also with our technology, it's not impossible, but it's not uh, the first step. Again, you need probably different materials for that. So, so just for this commercial reasons, no one will buy a refrigerator uh, without a freezer. Makes this a, a little tougher application, but a, a general um, uh, air conditioning system for, for example, building climatization, uh, for industrial climatization, for uh, server climatization server farms, et cetera. Those are those stationary stationary um, applications. Those are uh, really relevant fields uh, where uh, we can see this um, as, as uh, pilots maybe um, to have this technology be used in in the future. And I think one specific application that you and your colleagues are working on at the moment is developing an air conditioning system for electric cars. How is that work progressing, and, and what are some of the challenges that you're facing to, um, you know, to, to, to fit your system into a into a car? Yeah. Now I uh, <laughs> I just talked about the refrigerator being somewhat challenging. Um, the the electric car, or in general, the automotive industry. Uh, I don't think that there might be a, a more challenging field uh, <laughs> for for uh, for a new technology uh, to be explored. Um, the reason or the reason why, why we have this project now is on, on the same side, uh, being challenging these, these automotive companies, they are really willing to invest early and uh, invest uh, uh, a lot in, into new technologies because um, there is no uh, better solutions out there right now. So obviously in the, in the electro, electric mobility, electric cars, it's all about um, uh, reaching uh, longer distances that you can drive with longer distances for the energy you've stored in your battery. And uh, it's not only the interior climatization, uh, the air conditioning, maybe the heating in the winter, but it's also the whole uh, thermal management of the battery, battery system itself uh, in the charging process, uh, etc. So uh, it's, it's challenging. Um, to give you a little example of, of <laughs> what we're talking about, um, so our first demonstrator that we developed has a a thermal power of uh, 250 watts. That's this is what we could show as far as the, the heat that we are providing or the cool the cooling the cool air that we are providing. Um, so for electric cars, we need somewhat in the region of eight to ten kilowatts of of uh, thermal power uh, for all these um, these uh, characteristics and properties that the, the electric car needs. So this is really challenging, and at the same time, it allows us to really um, take the next steps in these technologies to take on these challenges, to have the funding uh, in this project, um, to look at the specific problems on the machine side, which is mainly our part, and also provides uh, funding to the, to the material scientists to work on better alloys, and, and uh, we can move forward to, to um, further develop uh, these, this technology on, on both levels in a parallel Way, manner um, to, to speed up this process. And this is, I think, the main role of, of the automotive funding is that they are willing to, to, uh, to fund and to invest in this technology at this early stage. Well, that, that's fantastic. I'm sure it sounds like you're really pleased that, um, that the automotive industry is, is interested in your technology. Thanks a lot, Paul, for coming on the podcast and telling us about your, uh, your new cooling technology. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me again. Now, I'm joined by my Physics World colleagues, Tammy Freeman and Margaret Harris, to talk about what's new in physics. Welcome to you both. Hi, Hamish. Hi, Hamish. 
So, Margaret, you're going to talk about a recent breakthrough in the study of cubic boron arsenide, which is a semiconductor that some people believe could replace silicon in electronics. So, so what's the story here? Well, the story is that for a few years now, theorists have been predicting that cubic boron arsenide ought to be an excellent semiconductor. But actually measuring the material's properties and verifying those predictions turned out to be really difficult. And why is it so difficult? I, I thought that, that condensed matter physicists would be very good at, at measuring the properties of a semiconductor by now. Well, you'd think so. But the basic problem is that cubic boron arsenide is really hard to synthesize in a pure form. It has lots of defects in its crystal lattice. It's not uniform at all. So when you try to measure its properties, uh, specifically the mobility of its electrons and holes, the charge carriers, if you try to use standard techniques, such as measurements of the Hall effect, you don't get accurate answers, or, or rather you get answers that depend on how many defects there happen to be in the region of the sample you're measuring. So, so how did this team get around that problem? Well, fundamentally, they needed to do their measurements only in the limited areas of the crystal that are uniform and defect-free, so they could get a true measure of the pure crystal's properties. And there were a couple of teams uh, working on this problem, and they used different techniques to do that. One team, led by Liu Jinfeng of China's National Center for Nanoscience and Technology, they used a technique called transient reflectivity microscopy. The second group, led by Gang Chen of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in the U.S., they used a technique known as transient grading spectroscopy. And in both cases, the basic idea is that you illuminate the sample uh, of the material with one or two very short pulses of laser light, and then you use a separate laser pulse, a probe pulse as it's called, to measure how the sample's reflectivity changes as a result of the initial pump pulse or, or pulses. And then you can relate that change to the carrier mobility. And so what did they find? Is, is this really a, a wonder semiconductor that we could all be using in, in a few years in, in our electronic devices? Well, possibly. What they found is that cubic boron arsenide has a very high carrier mobility for both electrons and holes. In fact, it's actually the highest ever found in any material. And it's much better than silicon, which has good mobility for electrons, but not for holes. And they also found that the thermal conductivity of cubic boron arsenide is the third best of any material after only diamond and a different form of boron arsenide. Uh, one of the teams that did this discovery actually claimed that cubic boron arsenide is not only the best semiconductor ever discovered, it may in fact be the best semiconductor possible, which is quite a claim to make. Yeah, that, that certainly is an intriguing claim. But I'm guessing that, um, that this isn't it. Um, there's probably lots more research to be done on this material. So what happens now? Well, if you can find a way of making large quantities of pure defect-free cubic boron arsenide, then this champion new semiconductor could possibly replace silicon in next-generation electronic devices. And that would mean reduced energy usage and also less need for cooling systems because um, silicon-based devices need cooling system because silicon is a really poor conductor of heat. But that if you can make defect-free cubic boron arsenide, is a, it's a big if, so we'll see. Okay. Well, that, that, that's really interesting. I, I, I suppose we have to keep in mind that... Um, you know, years and years ago, the idea of making a, a pure defect-free silicon crystal <laughs> was probably a, a pipe dream. So um, I, I suppose if there's a will, there's a way in this. <laughs>
Yeah, and I think what the, these researchers have done have discovered the the will, and um, it remains to be seen whether making pure cubic boron arsenide is a problem that hasn't been solved yet because no one was trying to solve it, or whether it's actually incredibly super hyper difficult to solve. But as you say, silicon sets a good precedent for that because making a pure crystal of silicon isn't actually isn't exactly a trivial thing to do either. There's a whole semiconductor industry that is involved in doing it. And you can read more about the amazing properties of cubic boron arsenide on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Champion Semiconductor Could Replace Silicon, Say Researchers. So Tammy, last week we covered a study that looked at how to detect hidden consciousness in brain-injured patients. C can you explain what, what this is? What, what is hidden consciousness and why would we want to detect it? Okay, so this study is about the treatment of patients with traumatic brain injury who are unconscious. So these are patients who don't respond to simple verbal commands and they're considered clinically unresponsive. Now, one of the hardest challenges in intensive care is determining whether such patients are likely to recover and to identify who might benefit most from rehabilitation. Now, unfortunately, recovery varies dramatically between patients from just a few months to several years. So at the moment, recovery is assessed by asking patients, for example, to move your hand or stick out your tongue. But for those that can't respond physically, the unconscious patients, it's really difficult for doctors to predict how long it will take for them to recover or even if they ever will. So in this study... A team led by Jan Klaassen at Columbia University examined whether measuring the brainwaves of such patients could help. And, and how are these brainwaves detected? And how are they used to, to, to make a decision about a patient? So the team used electroencephalography, or EEG. And this is where electrodes are placed on a patient's scalp to detect their brainwaves. Now, studies have shown that even if patients can't respond physically to commands, Sometimes their brainwaves indicate that they're still slightly aware of them. And this is what's called covert consciousness. So in this study, the team used machine learning to analyze the EEG recordings from the patients and to see if they could identify covert co consciousness and if they could relate it to a patient's recovery. And so what did they find? They studied 193 intensive care patients with traumatic brain injury, and all of whom were unresponsive to verbal commands at the start of the study. And they recorded EEG signals while giving the patients verbal commands to either keep moving or stop moving their hands. They then used machine learning to look for differences in the brain waves that appeared after the patients heard these two different commands. Now, in 27 of the patients, they identified brain waves associated with covert consciousness. In this group, nearly all of the patients started to improve after three months, and 41% of them made a complete recovery after a year. In contrast, in the other patients where they didn't detect covert consciousness, only 10% had made a full recovery in a year. So the researchers concluded that this EEG-based technique um, could be used to help predict the timescale of recovery in unconscious patients just using their brain activity, and this is really important because it could let doctors develop smarter rehabilitation programs for such brain injured patients. 
Wow, that, that sounds like a really fascinating study. And um, you, you can find out more about this research on the Physics World website. Look for the headline, EEG Detects Hidden Consciousness in Brain-Injured Patients. Now, Hamish, you're going to talk about the increasing danger posed by falling rocket stages. Yeah, this, this is, is really scary, actually. Um, th- th- this isn't something that I suppose a lot of people think of. You know, we know that lots of rockets are being launched with various satellites and scientific missions. But in, in many cases, the, the stages of those rockets just fall down to Earth. And th- thankfully, um, you know, most of them tend to fall in the ocean and no one is hurt. No one is uh, affected. But researchers in Canada have taken a close look at how this debris falls to Earth. And they've looked at material that's fallen from the 1,500 or so rocket launches that have occurred over the past 30 years. And they've concluded that there was actually a 14% chance that someone on the ground could have been killed by one of those falling rocket stages. So, so in a sense, we've been very lucky that, uh, that no one's been harmed so far. And because of the ongoing increase in the number of satellites that are being launched, the team says that a tragic event is becoming much more likely. And I gather there have been some near misses lately. Yeah, that's right. In, in May 2020, for example, wreckage from the 18-ton core stage of a Chinese Long March 5B rocket hit two villages in the Ivory Coast, thankfully only damaging buildings. And, and just last month, in July 2022, suspected wreckage from a SpaceX Crew-1 capsule impacted farmland in Australia. And another Long March 5B was allowed to fall in an uncontrolled manner towards waters just south of the Philippines. So, uh, yeah, there, there have been some close calls. The researchers also point out that these events are more likely to happen in the southern hemisphere. And therefore, they have the potential to affect the poorer people in the world, and also people in countries that are not launching a lot of satellites. So that really doesn't seem fair to me. No. Um, So are there not international regulations that stipulate where and when rocket stages can fall to Earth? No. uh, Amazingly, there aren't um, international regulations. Some countries have rules that define an acceptable risk of casualty for an uncontrolled re-entry. For example, in the US, it's one in 10,000. But the Canadian researchers claim that these rules are often not followed. And what do the researchers recommend could be done in the future? So one recommendation is that rockets carry extra fuel so they can be reignited and directed towards a safe re-entry point, perhaps crashing into a place called Point Nemo. This is a, a spaceship graveyard that's located at a place in the Pacific Ocean that's farthest from land. And this, hopefully, will be the final resting place of the International Space Station when it eventually crashes to Earth. Unfortunately, launch providers have been reluctant to direct rockets after launch because extra fuel means extra cost. Another approach is to adopt reusable rocket stages, such as SpaceX have successfully pioneered. 
But really, the team says that affected nations in the Southern Hemisphere should band together to try to create an international treaty that covers the reentry of materials from space. And they point out that even if they don't get the big spacefaring countries to sign on, it could cajole people who launch rockets into being more responsible about how reentries are handled. And you can read more about the dangers of debris falling from space on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Falling Rockets Pose Increasing Danger to Human Life, Study Reveals. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Margaret and Tammy. Sure thing. Thanks, Hamish. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast, which is sponsored by GNBKL. Do check out their video series, Will It Bloat?, which you can find at www.vacuumchamber.com. Thanks to Paul Motsky, Margaret Harris, and Tammy Freeman for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, if you like books about physics and you want to put your brain power to the test, we've created a quiz based on the opening sentences of some of the most popular books over the past few decades. See if you can recognize the first few words of A Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking, The Radium Girls by Kate Moore, and 14 other titles. The quiz is called The First Sentence Challenge, and it can be found in the August issue of Physics World and on the Physics World website. Physics World.